0: listening to a London Review of Books podcast. When I was growing up in the 20th century, revolutions seemed significant. At school, the Russian Revolution was everyone's favourite subject, but it was less theoretical for me than for most. My parents had ended up in England because of it. The 68er parents of school friends would tell me about the sexual and cultural revolutions of their youth, which, they said, changed the world. I was 12 in 1989 when we all watched the Berlin Wall fall on live TV. It seemed like the Russian Revolution in the 1960s rolled into one. The people taking power from elites while celebrating the subversive effect of U2. Later, when I went to film school and discovered Eisenstein, I realised that revolution had altered the way things looked. All those CNN and BBC montages with their close-ups of ordinary people on the revolutionary streets of Berlin, Moscow and Bucharest and their stirring music could have been borrowed from Battleship Potomkin or Strike. There were rolling news versions of Eisenstein's notion of making the crowd the hero, transformed through editing into a unified body. But in the 21st century, something changed. Suddenly, any national political fight was calling itself a revolution. The Rose Revolution, Georgia. The Green Revolution, Iran. The Tulip Revolution, Kyrgyzstan. The Jeans Revolution, Belarus. The Cedar Revolution, Lebanon. The Jasmine Revolution, Tunisia. Some of these were revolutionary, others not at all. Revolution stopped being the name you gave to a transformative historical moment and became the name a political technology gave itself in order to gain importance. Ukraine's Orange Revolution of 2004 had all the slogans, the set designs, the pop music, the flag-waving and video mash-ups of revolution. But when it was over, the same leaders returned to practice the same corrupt schemes as before. By this time, I was making documentaries. I would find myself drinking with foreign correspondents in bars. Was Kiev 2004 a real revolution? Was Bishkek 2005, we would ask? The Arab Spring made things worse. On TV, Tahrir Square looked like something out of Eisenstein. But when it went wrong, it did so gradually, in ways that didn't look so cinematic. And then there was Kiev's Maidan, the Euro revolution, the revolution of dignity, which celebrates the anniversary of its awful culmination this month. Another Ukrainian revolution, I thought, when it began. As thousands gathered to protest against Yanukovych's decision to abandon an association agreement with the EU in return for a 15 billion bung from the Kremlin, and as the protest turned violent with a 100 people shot before Yanukovych finally fled to Russia, the story of the revolution was already being spun in a 100 ways. It's a fascist CIA, Masonic, Zionist, anti-Semitic coup, the Russian press declared. It's all the fault of the EU's empire-building ambitions insisted the anti-EU crowd in Western Europe. Russia has a right to rule over Ukraine, reasoned the big power realists. And the Ukrainians who actually made or caught up in the revolution had their own ways of telling the story, Though the stories have changed over the years since Yanukovych fled, as the country has moved through presidential and parliamentary elections and Putin has sponsored, armed and helped man a war against Kiev in the old Yanukovych heartlands. When I first arrived in Maidan, a few months after the violence had ended, The square was still a tent city surrounded by barricades of tyres, car parts and furniture, as if the very fabric of the city had risen up and rebelled. The dregs of the Maidanistas were still living in the tents, refusing to leave. Wandering among them, I found a crucible of utopias. Cossacks dreaming of a return to the hetmanate. Liquid Democrats inventing ways to vote and then unvote for parliamentarians, as with likes on Facebook. Ethno pagan nationalists searching for pure Ukrainian chromosomes, libertarians, anarchists, neo fascists, and Christian socialists. After decades in Moscow with its aestheticized cynicism and London with its apolitical resignation, Kiev's uprush of utopias was refreshing and occasionally disturbing. Soon I found myself sitting in cafes scribbling my own pet utopia Ukraine as a Russia 2.0. Russia is not Europe the Kremlin's culture minister, Vladimir Medinsky, had recently announced. Could Kiev, I wondered, be a capital of a Russia that is Europe? I started to think which writers would be part of Russia 2.0. Medinsky could get Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn. We would get Chekhov, Turgenev and Nabokov. Tolstoy was a sticking point. One would think he was a Russian Russian, but might his excommunication by the Orthodox Church, which still describes him as using his great talent to destroy Russia's traditional spiritual and social order mean we have to take him in? The seduction of big ideas was internationally infectious. Returning to my hotel lobby, I encountered Bernard-Henri Lévy, bathed in TV lights, giving an interview to a local network. BHL had just delivered a lecture at the local university about Putinism as fascism. Putin is frightened of the loss of traditional values and the principles of religion, Lévy said. At the conference I was attending, On the meaning of Ukrainian pluralism for the future of Europe, Russia and the world, Paul Berman and Francois Heisberg kept returning to the idea of Russia as a home for a kind of clerical nationalism, Ukraine as the battleground for liberal values. Were these grand visions, I wondered, actually playing into Putin's hands? The Kremlin was doing all it could to recast the story of a battle against corruption and bad governance into a clash of civilizations. The bigger the idea of revolution became the more it was susceptible to spin. But many Ukrainians were wary of the excitement from abroad. I don't want to use the Maidan as my channel's masthead, said Zurab Alassanya, who had helped launch the independent TV channel of the revolution, Khromatsko, and was now trying to create the country's new public broadcasting channel. The risk is we become addicted to the idea of revolution, he told me. It becomes a substitute for doing anything else. We need to move away from the revolution of dignity to the revolution of effectiveness. Hannah Hopko told me. She had made a name for herself on the Maidan by collecting money to help feed and clothe ordinary citizens. Hopko had a different idea of the West's role from BHLs. She saw Europe as complicit in supporting Yanukovych's violent kleptocracy, providing a safe refuge for all the money stolen from the budget. The IMF wants strict conditions for a 2.7 billion loan, she said. That's only a fraction of the money Yanukovych stole and hid in the West. How about you just give us that back instead? Six months on, 4 billion of the 100 billion the Ukrainian prosecutor's office claims Yanukovych stole have been impounded. Hannah Hopko is now an MP. The new cabinet includes people who have no connection to the old loops of corruption. But the fact they are new also means they have no influence with the entrenched bureaucracy, which persists almost unchanged. The press is freer than it was before. Alasanya's channel has just investigated dodgy real estate development by the new president. But whether that freedom can be converted into influence is unclear. A journalist who camped out in front of the presidential administration building and recorded who went in and who went out reported that many of the old faces from the Yanukovych years had a habit of stopping by in the evening. As for the old oligarchs, they are only growing more powerful as the government approaches bankruptcy. In the 2015 Heritage Index of Economic Freedom, Ukraine has sunk seven places and is now bottom of the European table. The government has neglected those who are suffering from the consequences of the war in the far east of the country, on both sides of the line. Bombing civilians in rebel-held areas and cutting them off from whatever welfare might provide has put paid to any residual loyalty to Kiev. Meanwhile, the hungry and wounded on the Ukrainian side are largely ignored. But as the old state clings on, a sort of parallel civil society government has been self-organising. It feeds and equips the army, provides legal and social services to internally displaced refugees, brings medical aid to those who are stuck in war zones both on the Ukrainian and the rebel-held side. For all the bad news, there appears to be some sort of social miracle taking place. We've had our February revolution, we're still to have our October revolution, a magazine editor I met joked. There is talk of a third Maidan, but even serious political analysts are wondering whether the next one would be orchestrated by Moscow. Having calculated that they can't suppress the Ukrainian talent for revolution, Moscow might instead try to control the next Maidan from within. And it's in Moscow that the main counter-narrative to the revolution has been developed. There are many geopolitical dividends Putin might hope to draw by sponsoring, arming and manning the rebellion against Kiev in East Ukraine, but there is an important narrative trick the Kremlin is trying to pull off too. Revolution is meant to equal chaos on war, framed not merely as pointless but as downright bad. Kremlin spin doctors put Maidan in one line of disasters along with Syria and Libya, all organised by the CIA, of course, and ultimately questioned whether the fall of the Berlin Wall was such a great thing after all. The idea is to undercut any desire for revolution at home, which also means policing the stories that are told. On 30th December, Teatr Dok, Moscow's first documentary theatre in a tiny cellar of the Patriarch Ponds, screened a Ukrainian film about the Maidan, which didn't fit with the Kremlin's preferred picture – the theatre was immediately raided by the police and the intelligence services. Another documentary film about the revolution is Sergei My Maidan, about to be shown at the ICA and BFI in London. Loznitsa's film pushes the idea of revolution into another unexpected framework. Throughout the film, the camera never moves. There are long, wide shots with landscapes of the revolution, the Maidan, a hall where protesters are sleeping, the soup kitchen. This is self-consciously anti-Eisenstein. There are few editing cuts, no stirring close-ups, no dynamic montage. The audience's sympathies aren't guided, they aren't told where to look. Loznitsa wants to reconceive the way we make films about revolution. The protesters who carry pieces of the city to build barricades are ants carrying leaves and twigs to build their hill. The kitchen boys and girls who make thousands of sandwiches for the Maidanistas are bees making honey. The burkuts swarming into frame before they open fire look like locusts. When protesters die, the camera doesn't zoom in on their agony. It's like watching an insect die on the tip of your shoe. From this point of view, revolutionary passion seems petty. As the film moves on, tableau by tableau, an odd transformation takes place. The scenes seem to be more like Hubble shots of the cosmos. The stones thrown by protesters rain down like a meteor shower. Flares floating through the night sky are planetary bodies. The Maidanistas advance and the bear could retreat in flows of Milky Ways. Loznita cuts between a long shot of fire and a long shot of snow, a story of the elements. This is revolution in the sense not of forcible overthrow of government, but of the revolution of planets around stars. And it makes the Maidan feel more significant rather than smaller, an event with its own astronomy, an epic of outer space. The question of whether revolution is important or the sacrifice worth it falls away. How can you be for or against the Milky Way? The question is only, what will your place in it be? When, in the final shot, Losnitsa comes back to the human, as protesters pray at night for the dead, he pulls off the feats of putting the cosmic into the personal. Even as the bodies of the dead are carried through the crowd, there is no sentiment. One mourner scratches his nose, another cries, a third stares. They're still small and silly, but part of an epic. Recently, at yet another conference, I was asked whether, given that I was born in Kiev, I should be introduced as Russian or Ukrainian. In my many hyphenated identities, I had never thought of myself as Ukrainian. I was nine months old when my family emigrated from Kiev. I knew real Ukrainians and recognised their complicated search for nationhood, but it was never my search. My parents speak Russian. They brought me up on Russian literature. I'd always been the Russian at my London schools. But the Maidan gave words new meanings. The term Banderovits in honour of Stepan Bandera, associated previously with anti-Semitism, the slaughter of Poles, the Ukrainian far-right and independence from Russia, was now embraced by Russian-speaking Kiev Jews who see Poland as a political model and who took to calling themselves Yid-Banderovtsy. Khochol, the pejorative name for Ukrainians, was now used with pride. While the 2004 Orange Revolution had been inspired by a 19th century language and soil nationalism, this revolution seemed to open the way for a new Ukrainian. I suddenly felt very sharply that my mother was from Kiev, my father grew up in Chernovitz, my grandparents are from Odessa and Kharkiv, and so when I was asked a question at the conference, I breathed deeply and said words I never thought I would. I am Ukrainian. It felt strange the mmm cut off with a sharp, whistling intake of you, breaking into the avalanche of krrrr. I remembered the way revolutionary poets of the 1920s wanted to create new sounds to produce a new world. I am Ukrainian. The physical sensation of saying the words is revolutionary, like a new planet in the mouth. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.